Hi, uh, my name is Ed Wolf. This is the Vape Week number six. And on tonight's show, we're going to have Greg Troutman, who is the lawyer involved with the federal lawsuit trying to push back the prohibitively bad laws that have been passed in Indiana. And so we're going to talk about uh, the ramifications of all of that and, you know, cutting to some of the chase, talk about the hearing that will be heard on the 18th in court, and uh, hopefully individuals in Indiana will go out and uh, pack that courtroom, um, and that part will be at the end of the interview. Uh, I definitely want to thank Greg Troutman uh, for making himself available. You know, as you will hear soon, uh, it's it's he goes through and spends a lot of time to, to explain exactly what's happening and uh, possible scenarios one way or the other. Um, and so I, I absolutely really thank him. And if you guys need to contact me for any type of items, uh, you can do that by contacting me at vapingindustry at gmail.com, vapingindustry at gmail.com. And uh, this is going to be the entire show tonight. Um, and I, uh, I hope you enjoy. Um, well, it might not be uh, the most enjoyable topic, but I hope it is beneficial for your purposes. Um, thanks a lot. All right, so uh, we're going to do an interview now with Greg Troutman, and he's involved with the Indiana stuff, so I'll uh, let him introduce himself and his uh, law firm and give a little bit of uh, an overview of what he's doing with Indiana. Hey, Edward. Um, I'm Gr- it's Greg Troutman. I am in the principal at the Troutman Law Office in Louisville, uh, Kentucky. I got involved um, in the Indiana lawsuit back a little over a year ago. I represent... Um, Derby Sigs, which is a local um, e-cigarette retailer distributor, and um, they have an Indiana presence, and were concerned when when this law was being debated and when it passed that it was going to uh, harm their business because most of the e-liquid that they purchase is from out of state. And in looking at the law, and I'd, I'd handled a case a number of years ago um, involving uh, wine shipping for. Um, from out-of-state wineries, and it's very similar to what uh, we've got in the Indiana case. And so Troy got me involved in this. Troy uh, LeBlanc, um, who's the principal at Derby Six, got me involved in this, and a couple of um, out-of-state e-liquid companies that were smaller companies got involved, and we filed a lawsuit middle of May last year against the state of Indiana challenging the, um, the, new, the new regulations. And it's been a, a very interesting ride for the last um, eleven months. So there, um, there's the one that the Hoosier Vapors announced, and that's in-state. And then yours is different. How? Ours is different. That it, it's similar in some respects and different in other respects. Um, ours is based upon federal law, as opposed to the state law claims that. Um, the Indiana people are, are asserting. Now, we are asserting an Indiana state constitutional claim that's sort of a, a tag, we call tag-along claim uh, with along with our federal case. And we represent out-of-state interests, solely out-of-state interests. Um, now, we do represent Derby Sigs Indiana because there's a retail component to this law that says that a in-state retailer cannot sell e-liquid that is not made in accordance with the regulations. So it will have an effect on the re- retailers. Um, 
So we, we brought them along in this as well. The basis for our suit is under the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, we're alleging that certain parts of this law in Indiana uh, apply extraterritorially. And, and by that, I mean that the state of Indiana is projecting its regulatory authority outside of its boundaries uh, to affect commerce that happens in other states. The e-liquid is made in California, Florida, Nevada, Arizona, wherever. Indiana is telling e-liquid manufacturers in those states, if you want to sell an in your product in Indiana, you've got to meet certain requirements in your state that we impose. We, we claim that is unconstitutional. We're challenging it on um, under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution because the law regulates what we call open system e-liquid manufacturers, that is the bottled liquids, but exempts what we call the closed system e-liquid manufacturers, the Sigalites, uh, Blue, Enjoy, etc. We believe that there's no distinction between the two types of e-liquids. They're all made by the same, um, in the same kind of process. They all include the same ingredients. There's no meaningful difference between them. They function the same way. Uh, there's no meaningful difference between them. And we believe that was done to give an unfair advantage to the big tobacco companies. Yeah, when when I saw the the PBS interview, they they actually spoke to Yoder and uh, Mahan, uh, said that they wanted to come back and address the Sigalike uh, issues or, or the issues that from the RJR and the other type of things, and they said that they they thought it were were to only be fair um, for for them to regulate the the uh, them both the same way. Did you see that interview? I did, and actually, I think the term that Senator Yoder used was it would be patently unfair to regulate one and not the other. Um, yeah. Was the term he used? Yeah, and, and uh, I guess I'm gonna have to pat myself on the back a little bit. Did you see that only after I started, you know, kind of covering this? I mean, it's did had you seen that a couple of weeks ago or not? I had not, and I, um, it, it was very useful, and that was um, a good pickup. I, I appreciated the the heads up on that. Okay, uh, so there, there's 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 a lot of uh, I don't know about what about this industry whether it's the young players in it or not, but there is a lot of uh, I've I've received grief for for trying to bring attention to this and and the continuing fight. So um, again, a, a, a shameless self plug there. So because he said that it would only be fair, as you just said, does that enable different aspects of a lawsuit or does that put put the law in more jeopardy than it than it is previously it's it's a piece of evidence and and if you think of a lawsuit like a a big jigsaw puzzle every piece fits in in a place and that's the same thing in any case you have in court you have a huge puzzle you got to put the pieces together to make the case it's a piece of the puzzle right so um Again, the, the state is going after it. The, the state lawsuit is based off of what? The state, well, there's a third element to the federal lawsuit that I didn't mention, that I didn't get to. Okay. And that's, that's under the due process clause um, of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And that part of it entails a, a very 
minute aspect of the case, but a large aspect of the case, and that goes to the security requirements. And there's been a lot of talk about this, and probably more talk than anything else about this um, on social media, is that the law requires you to have a contract with a security company, and that security company has to meet certain requirements. Um, one of the requirements under the law that was passed last year was that you had to have a single employee that had been in your employee for more than a year that had a dual certification. Uh, one was a rolling steel fire door certification, and the other was an architectural hardware certification. Uh, the problem is that there was no company, no security company in the country that had a single employee had been employed for at least a year with the dual certifications. As a matter of fact, there was not an employee that had both certifications. So, so nobody, nobody could qualify. So when, when usually when you see a law, uh, it says that if any part of this law is, you know, is is tossed out, that the remaining sections of the law remain in effect. So can you throw out the security side of it, and then the rest of it stays in, in effect, or? or, it's, or it's, it's what's called severability, and yes, um, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. And if you think about it in terms of a patient has cancer, the surgeon goes in, and the surgeon doesn't kill the entire body. The surgeon goes in and exacts the cancer, and hopefully the body lives after that. Right. We're so in the court to strike the security provisions. There's a provision that requires you to, which is a, we believe is a ridiculous, nonsensical provision, that you have to complete clean rooms have to comply with the Indiana kitchen commercial kitchen code like you're a restaurant that makes no that makes no sense because the whole kitchen code is applied to keep bacteria viral infections etc from taking place in in commercial kitchen settings well that's not going to happen here but isn't that to me that sounds kind of reasonable in fact I've spoken to e-liquid manufacturers that say that when for a commercial kitchen, you know, that's a joke because they're already several several levels higher than that. So if, because they're using, a, you know, a different clean room, uh, I don't know all the different, you know, clean room seven or six. Or I don't know the difference. You're talking about ISO requirements. Right. That, that they've had, that they're, that they're already manufacturing at a higher level than the commercial standard. So it, what's the problem with having a commercial kitchen standard as the base level? Because e-liquids are kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a manufacturing a product that is for human consumption, even though it's lung versus stomach. Well, part was one of the reasons was that the e-liquid itself is antiviral and antimicrobial. And the state of Indiana and nobody else can cite to us a single case where anybody's ever been infected with bacteria or virus from ingesting e-liquid. So, so the liquid itself is going to kill any virus or any bacterial uh, elements that are there. Well, I'm not sure if, the, if it will kill every one of them because, you know, just because it's an antimicrobial doesn't mean that it's going to kill... MRSA or whatever you know it, it's in other words what I'm just saying is that if if the clean room standard of being a kitchen is a as a lower level than most what's the point of attacking the the clean room the the kitchen standard is there the, the point is is that the clients that we represent are ISO certified labs whether it's seven eight 
whatever ISO level it is, they are certified labs. What this kitchen standard is going to do is going to make them go in and put redundant kitchen equipment in their labs that they'll never use. Okay, so that's it then. So, so, so there, there's elements of that standard that require certain amounts of equipment that are really for a food-based industry and have nothing to do with, with, uh, with just cleanliness, it sounds like. Absolutely. Oh. And, you know, what's, what's also interesting, and the state conceded this in, in this case, the type of equipment that is used in these clean rooms, these automated machines, are not the kind of things that you can break down and put into a three-compartment sink like your McDonald's. You know, this is not the Egg McMuffin, you know, contraption that you use to make Egg McMuffins in or the scrambled eggs. And at the end of the sh- breakfast shift, which I guess never ends now, um, you go and you um, you clean them and you sanitize them in the three-tiered sink. You can't do that with some of these mechanized machines. Right. And you, you're not fighting salmonella or, or the other things that 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 which McDonald's and other people have to have to deal with. Right. So that makes sense. So in other words, it, it's just that the standard that they're asking for, even though whether or not it's well intended or not, it's going to put a financial burden that is not needed uh, for the objective of what even even that the legislator is trying to say, we want this to be made cleanly. The, the approach that they've used is uh, ass backwards, essentially, that they're. They're, they're just doing it wrong. And so you're in, you're in a fight on that. Essentially, yes. And then the third thing that we're fighting is the audit requirement. And what that entails is, is an e-liquid manufacturer, no matter whether you're in state or out of state, you have to agree to allow the state of Indiana's Alcohol Tobacco Commission to come on your site and do inspections. Well, the, the Indiana ATC has no legal authority outside the boundaries of the state of Indiana. Right. The Indiana ATC, for instance, can't come over the bridge to Kentucky or across to Ohio or Illinois and have authority to do anything in those states. Right. Uh, yeah, there's some some movies that uh, that they have. Once they cross the state line, they say, uh, you know, you have no authority in our in our state. Go back to yours. Uh, so yeah. So so right. So they can't do that. Then there's is that is that based on the interstate commerce clause and, and stuff like based, that. It's based on the commerce clause uh, to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, but I'm going to turn back to the due process argument because that's that's one of the more interesting elements of our case is we're arguing that because nobody can comply, that it violates due process. There's no rational basis to make someone jump through a hoop that they can't jump through. Right. Now, this also leads us to the recent um, legislative amendment that passed a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I have have some questions. Let me... Ask the question on that. I am very much familiar with what happened back in 2015, right? And, and so then it it came up again, and then I watched the hearings, and I watched this one, uh, you know, uh, woman with blonde hair, and she said that uh, she put in the amendment, and that she wanted uh, for the security stuff, and she wanted it to be removed because. It, she never intended it to to do what it's doing. She never intended to create a monopoly, and she lobbied and and stood up there before everybody else, saying uh, that she wanted uh, her amendment was to remove her first amendment, and she got voted down. 
So right. I, I did watch that. So wh- what else does the does the 2016? Wh- what what is the whole 2016 part of it? The stuff well, that I guess Governor Pence has to to sign it again into law. That's where it stands right now. He has already signed it. To so under- so it's done now. So it's, it's, it's a done deal. Okay. And so, it was an emergency legislation, so it took effect immediately. So what is so it? it? Well, to understand that, you have to go back a little ways to what they did last year. Because what they did this year was a fix to they, – they, last year when they passed this law, they, the people who wrote this security requirement, that is the people who were intended to be benefited by it, wrote it so strong that even they themselves couldn't comply with it. So um, that was something that our federal court lawsuit pretty much put everybody on alert that wait a second, guys, you've made this so strong that even you can't comply with it. So that was the genesis of this amendment you're referring to. And the senator, we believe, was goaded into offering this up in committee. And what happened was this was proposed as a standalone bill, and it was going nowhere. And there was a omnibus alcohol and tobacco bill that was passed in the Indiana House. Right. It went to the Indiana Senate. And the committee, the public policy committee in the Indiana Senate is where this bill went to for hearing. There were several committee amendments on several other issues that were collateral that not related to this that came up that were discussed. And this amendment was then offered in committee. Right. And, And what it did is I said earlier, you had to have one employee with dual certifications. This amendment tweaks that so that you can have multiple employees so long as one has one certification and one has the other. Right. And so isn't there something about that the person has to be uh, hired for, been an employee for a year or something like that? Correct. How does that work? How can you even put that something like that into a law? I, I, that one blows me away. Well, you can write pretty much whatever you want into a law, and if someone votes on it and, and the governor signs it and it becomes effective and nobody challenges it, it's the law. So is that a good spot to be challenged, that, that particular aspect? That Because what, what if one company buys another company and then that, that employee, there's a new parent company, does that, then, does that single employee then spread all of its goodness over to the new larger company? Because one thing I've heard, there was, a, a, there was a Facebook post where somebody called up, and I don't know the name of it, but the security company that is supposed to be the one that can do it, and, and the, that security company says, we have we can't take any new clients. We're 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 all booked up. So, um, and the guy on the phone is basically saying, "We were told you're the only people to do it, and how how can it be that you can't take any new clients?" So that's if a parent company, say, uh, uh, what's a good big security company? Uh, ADT. ADT buys this little tiny company, and they have that one uh, that one person that can deal with steel roll doors. Does then ADT then become uh, golden as far as this law, or, or am I just... We don't know. And part of why we don't know is because the final regulations that were meant to implement this have never been adopted. Say that again. I don't understand what you just said. The law that was passed last year required the Alcohol Tobacco Commission to adopt regulations by December 31st, 2015. 
and what happens is when a law is passed, it's sort of, if you think of a, a skeleton, a human body, the law itself is the skeleton and the regulations that are adopted by the agency that administers that law is sort of the meat. They put the meat on the bones. Well, we've got the bones, but we don't have the meat because the ATC has adopted um, emergency regulations, but they're not final regulations, which the law contemplated. So if, because they haven't adopted those, does that, does that invalidate the law or is that just too easy? Well, it, it is, again, part one of the pieces of the puzzle, overall puzzle we've got to deal with. Um, those regulations are what give guidance to the, not only the agency, but the people who are going to be regulated as to what is required of them. And at this point, nobody really knows, you know, what all the rules are because the rules haven't been written yet. The problem is the books close as of June 30th. Right. And there was something in, I think that's what you're talking about. The, there's something in the law where it says that if you are not, and, and this was actually said uh, during the, the, the Senate session or whatever session I was watching uh, live, uh, that, that if it's, uh, that if the people don't have the application in and done by June 30th, 2016, then forevermore, you can never have a license uh, it, it 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 makes the the existing licenses the only licenses that can ever be done is that correct correct and it's a little that's a little deceiving because i think the window is even shorter than that um because the atc has 60 days from the time you apply to make a decision on your application so if the deadline it's not the deadline for applying. It's the deadline for getting your permit. A deadline for approved. Yeah. So you have to be approved by X date. So you have to back out the application submission so, time. So really, the the real deadline is April 30th. So in, in 29 days. In 29 days. Huh. What's even worse is the application for the permit didn't even become publicly available to the first week of February. Right. And so do you have any idea of how many people, uh, did, well, let me ask, first, do, do we know of anybody that has this license? To my knowledge, nobody has um, formally applied yet. Does Monument Vapor have a license? To, to our knowledge, nobody has applied, even applied yet. Okay, so... It, and, and, and I say that with the caveat that there was an article in the Indianapolis Business Journal back about a month ago that there was a company from Richmond, Virginia, that applied at the end of February and just a few days later withdrew their application. Uh, how, what's the application fee to, to do this? thousand dollars so they, they lost a thousand bucks not a big deal for them probably uh so that's that's interesting so in other words that anybody what let's just go through the scenario that uh nobody applies uh what happens then well if nobody applies then um i don't think that's a scenario we're going to frankly we're going to see i think there are going to be some applications um if nobody applies, then nobody is able to get a permit. If nobody is able to get a permit, then the only e-liquids that could legally be sold in Indiana 
after July 1st are the closed system cartridges that are sold with the Sigalites. So that's that's store. Let's first uh, we're talking about store locations inside of Indiana. So distributors, um, say say I'm a distributor and I distribute ten different lines. I won't be able to bring any of those in to Indiana, and then any liquids that are made inside of Indiana won't be able to sell, be sold as open system either. So in this in this. Uh, the, the this acid test scenario where nobody applies it shuts down e-liquid sales in indiana and because it's it's either you get on the boat or you forever lose the chance it would it would be until the law was changed it would be forever more that nobody could sell any bottled e-liquid inside of indiana Right. Nobody, nobody could legally sell bottled e-liquid. Right. So, so let's go through the. Okay. So, the, so if nobody applies, it's it's no, it's nobody. It's done. Uh, you know, it's it's really bad. So now, now the next scenario is the more likely scenario is that ten different people apply, uh, and then they, if that's the case, then they all get approved, and then they are forevermore the only people that can sell bodily liquid inside of the United uh, inside of Indiana. Right. So let me ask the question that, that I'm looking for, for distributors is that if we'll, will one of those people, can, can I, if I was inside of Indiana, can I put in an application and then bring in, uh, uh, outside of vendor, uh, outside of state vendors, e-liquids inside, be, based upon my license. Yes, because what's going to happen is whoever has the licenses will be will be what's called a kingmaker. And if you want to sell your e-liquid in Indiana, you're going to have to make make it, produce it um, in the facility of the licensed manufacturer. In the licensed manufacturer. So, but you have to be licensed. In, so it has to be made inside of Indiana or can it come from out of state? Well, it can come from out of state. So, if if for a thousand dollars, maybe maybe right now, I think I should get one. So, if I get one, uh, then I could go over to a large California company and then say, uh, "You have to manufacture it per this specification. I'll give you the specification. Then I can bring you into Indiana." Is that, yeah, that is that, that true? That that is true. So. Um, what does it take to fill out this application? Maybe I should talk to you offline, but let's keep on going. Well, uh, what, what does it take to do the application? Is it, is it achievable just by itself or not? Well, the the problem is you have to submit a number of standalone items. You have to you have to undergo a background check by the Indiana State Police. Um, that's why it's the sixty day process to to um, review the application. You also have to have your contract with your security company. It has to be a minimum five-year contract. So you, you have to lock yourself in uh, with that, and you've got to submit a copy of that contract. Um, and the you have to certify under penalty of perjury that you meet the requirements. So it, it, when you say it's a five-year contract, can that five-year contract have an escape clause, out, you know, uh, a, a, a giant escape clause, a no-penalty escape clause? Well, I mean, I guess it could. Um, for instance, I would want to see this as, as a, if I was representing an out-of-state e-liquid company or even an in-state e-liquid company, 
and they were going to contract with a security company, uh, I would want an escape clause from that agreement in the event that the law, the security provision is held unconstitutional. You don't, so you don't need the security anymore. You could drop the security. Right. That's what I'm just saying is that if it's written in the way it's written that it has to be five-year contract, it doesn't mean that it has to be a, a one that there's a penalty for early pay, uh, for early termination. So there can be a, it's a five-year contract, but it, then it says the termination clause and it can say you can terminate under any time uh, and after one month, you're no longer due for any fees. Um, but that's, I would want that, but Again, that's going to be a point of negotiation with a security company, right? And and they may not want to give. So, if I, what's the take on the security company? If 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 uh, the, supposedly there's only one that can do it, uh, right. but what if I contract uh, with ADT and I submit my application based off of what ATT is is doing? So I, I basically set up a, a contract with with a security company and I do all the application. I submit it. Will the state approve my application? Well, I mean, I can't say one way or the other what the state will or will not do because obviously I don't speak for the state. Um, they very well, they very well may, or they may say you don't yeah. qualify. So I mean, um, I, I'm pretty good at, at at you know sneaking into you know concerts. I, I come from the generation where it was general admission, so everybody had the same ticket. So the, right. the only way you could get the uh, the best seats uh, is is by figuring out how to get in front of the crowd. Uh, so if if I let me ask, if you're in Indiana, uh, it, it, are these applications only available to Indiana residents, or can somebody from out of state make the application? No, somebody from out of state could make the application, and and the application is available on online on the Indiana ATC website, and you can get it. Now, assuming that you file the application, assuming you have the security contract with whoever that security company may be. And assuming the ATC granted you a permit, you're not out of the woods because the law, the way it is written, and we believe this was done intentionally, it is written that another licensee, another permittee can file a lawsuit to challenge your permit. Well, I read that in the first law back in 2015. That was one of the things I was bent out of shape about. The uh, prevailing party is awarded attorney's fee part. And that's, I talked a little bit about that. But it's, are you saying something is, is it's different? Because uh, I didn't really read the, the part where it says licensee can challenge licensee. No, well, that's, that's, the, that's what we're talking about. That provision means right, right. that if ABC e-liquid company in Indiana gets a permit and XYZ um, e-liquid company in wherever right. gets a permit, ABC can sue XYZ challenging their permit. But what, what would be the basis of the challenge of the permit? Wouldn't it be just that they're manufacturing improperly, that they're not using their permit properly? What, can they actually challenge the... I mean, if I get a driver's license and somebody else gets a driver's license, our, our driver's license are valid, but you can challenge somebody if they crash into your car. So isn't it kind of the same thing? Why? How can they, can they just challenge the validity of your license just by itself? They can challenge whether or not you met the requirements. Okay, so so they can, and and that would essentially be the security company because other than that, it's 
it's it's everything's everything else seems to be proof in the pudding. So if I get a license and I'm not manufacturing, the only thing I can really have to demonstrate is that I have a security contract, or is there something else that's written in the law? No, I, I believe I believe we're talking about the same thing, but I also believe that this was done for a reason. Go ahead. Um, you know, this industry was unregulated in Indiana, and. I've practiced. I've been practicing business law way too long, and understand way too much about how things work with business. That you don't have an unregulated industry where certain players in that industry go and ask the government to please regulate us, unless they think they're going to get a benefit from that regulation. Right. And I think you connect the dots here as to who was behind this law, who was speaking in support of this law whose lobbyists wrote this law to see who the intended beneficiaries of this law are. Okay, and that's what I, you know, I alluded to in the last week that I did a ton of research back in 2015. But let's just, you know, cut to the chase. Does that make a difference? Any, you know, it was it was an ugly baby. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to use a, a birthing analogy. Actually, uh, it, all that stuff is how this law came into be. But does it even make a difference anymore? Other, it, you know, does it? Should we even talk about this stuff anymore? Well, I, I think there's some relevance to it because it, it sort of goes into the commerce clause issue. And it goes into the due process issue. Um, if, in fact, this law was passed as an intended uh, vehicle to allow an in-state interest in Indiana to get a monopoly to the detriment of the out-of-state interests, and remember, 90% of the e-liquid is made outside of Indiana. So if that was done for the purpose of gaining a monopoly to favor an in-state interest, then that violates the Commerce Clause. That is direct... Um, unfair trade? Well, it's not, not it's something else. Well, not unfair trade. It is, it is direct interference with the free trade envisioned by the, by the Commerce Clause. What's that phrase, that legal phrase? Something uh, torturous interference, or what is it? It's, uh, not, it's not torturous interference. That's a whole different uh, area, area of legal concept. Um, but it is certainly impacting unfairly, we believe, um, the free trade of goods across state lines. Right. So if the state of Indiana passes a regulation that has a direct or indirect impact on interstate commerce, and a majority of that commerce comes from out of state, then there is a potential issue under the Commerce Clause. Right. Um and so, I mean, it sounds like your federal suit has has, um, has a lot of good basis on it. So the three prongs, again, uh, unless there's a fourth, what are the, the three headings for the prongs that you're using? It's Commerce Clause, Equal Protection, and Due Process. Okay. And so... Uh... <sighs> What what would you be advising? Let's say I don't know how many e-liquid companies are in that are that are based in Indiana right now, uh, but what would you advise them to do uh, in the in the twenty nine remaining days? And there there could be a, a, some flexibility if if you if you put your application in, uh, 
you know, with 30 days to go, uh, even though their response time is guaranteed for 60, you might be able to get under under the wire, uh, maybe. But there's well, no reason. So, so what would what would what you would what would you advise a company that is manufacturing e-liquids in Indiana to do on on April 1st? It's a real quandary, Edward, because you don't know if you don't meet this if you don't meet the legal requirements it's kind of hard to tell a client to apply for something that you don't think that they're going to qualify for. So it's hard to give that advice to a client. Uh, I think it's hard to ethically give that advice to a client. But, but would the, if, if the, if it's unachievable, could you actually get your money back your thousand dollars? I suppose you could take them to small claims court that they, uh, can you take the state to small claims court to saying that they uh, asked you to take uh, make an application that could never be done, and so that I've, you want... I've never tr- I've never tried that, you know, and that's one of the that's one of the legal arguments that we're going to have to hash out here in the next month is you know do the do we have our people apply knowing they probably don't you know or, or they don't comply with it not probably is not even a, a qualifier that they don't qualify. Because if the security company that you've referred to won't do business with them, and they're going to be the only security company that complies, you know, I'm hesitant to tell my clients to or anybody to apply, knowing that there's the possibility that even if you get the permit, you're then going to buy yourself a lawsuit to um, someone challenging that permit you've gotten. Yeah, but the thing is that I think that if you were to apply for it and you would put down ADT uh, and then ADT, uh, you know, uh, maybe you have a conversation with their salesman or not. It doesn't matter. But if if then they 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 reject your application solely based off of the that the security company doesn't meet the the, the go no criteria, then you could say, well, fine, but my application should still be valid tell me which security company that you want me to go to and then they would have to literally point you to zero they'd say actually they don't and i think what they're going to tell you is that's not our job but does it's been a while since i looked at does it actually specify clearly about the certifications that are needed uh, but the rolling steel door, does it have that all in the first law? It's all in the first law, and it's in the second law. And what changed in the second law was they, um, I think they changed an and to an or, or, or they, they configured it where you don't have to have one employee with both, but you can have one employee with one certification, one with the other. And if you really want to hear something even more astounding, is that this law requires you to the security company to have an employee that has this rolling steel fire door certificate? The law does not require your clean room to have a rolling steel fire door. Right. I don't even. I, to to me, it just blows me away. Rolling steel uh, fire door. I, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't I mean, make any sense. I, I understand if they put the requirement that that your clean room had to have the rolling steel fire door. Um, that would be fine if they did that, but they didn't do that. But you've got to have someone who has that certification. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and, and one of the briefs we filed, I referred to this as Kafkaesque. If you've ever read any Franz Kafka's work, it sort of, that's, sort of applies here. 
do you think he was the cockroach or do you think he was just telling a story of the cockroach? I think he was telling the story of the cockroach. Okay. So, yeah, so go ahead with your coffee S analogy then. Is that they've created, the, the state's created a um, framework here, regulatory framework that you can't comply with. You're, you're sort of chasing your tail. And, and they're imposing these requirements on you that are nonsensical. The rolling steel fire door one is, is the best example I can cite. They make you have the certification, but don't make you have the actual door. Right. And and so who how for something like this that's in in the legislature that that's written into the law, who who normally would adjudicate this? I mean, if if you have a dispute with the or is it because they're the lawmakers, they can just write whatever they want and then is that, is that what the state suit is doing? That they're they're basically saying you can't that this is an impossible. This is ten miles north of the North Pole criteria. It's it doesn't even exist. So why are you making us jump through this hoop? I, I don't know. That's part of it. Their ba- the state case um, that Evan McMahon and his group have is mainly under the Indiana law, the Indiana Constitution, and there's some also some administrative regulatory issues involving state law that they are, are challenging. And so what's the time frame of, of all that? That, that torpedo in the water, how is, how is that one moving along? Well, theirs was filed later than ours. Theirs was not filed until December. When was yours filed? Ours was filed in May. Okay, so, so in May 2015, you filed? I filed in May 2015 in federal court in Indianapolis. Yeah, I don't think most people even understood that. So Troy, uh, Troy was the guy that that uh, that uh, ponied up to do this. So he he's he's the guy that instigated this. He he was the guy who instigated this. And, okay. And that's that's I wouldn't call it instigated. He stood up and he um, he took one for the team on this case. In this case, for the well, industry. Well, I mean, but he he's uh, you know he he started the ball. I mean, he he. He, uh, inst- I think instigated is the right word, uh, that he, uh, he, he instigated the federal lawsuit. He was the, uh, uh, the catalyst. He, he was the catalyst of the, the federal lawsuit. Catalyst is probably a better term. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I don't think, I, I didn't know that until just now that, that it was started back then. Um, so that's yeah. good. That's good. I mean, it, I, I, you know, I like to use analogies. Torpedo in the water. You, if, it's, if the boat's far away, you still need to get that thing in the water driving towards it. So that, well, was, that started in 2015. And so then the, the state case, so go, I think you were talking about the state side, right? The, the state side, and, and both of them have worked on a sort of a parallel path for a little bit here for the last couple months. Um, the federal case has taken a little bit longer because cases in federal quarters are more reg- regimented in as far as how the scheduling goes than um, state cases are. And um, we have to jump through a bunch more hoops that you don't in state court. Um, we have a litigation plan that we've agreed to. And in our federal case, we filed our motion for summary judgment uh, at the end of January, and the state filed their response um, a week ago this past Monday. Our reply is due April 13th. So say, wait, wait, say, say that again. You, you filed for summary judgment when? January 29th. And so then they usually have like 30 days to respond, right? We set a schedule up, and it's a little bit longer briefing time because the case is, the case is novel. It's it's a pretty complicated case, and it's is the first case of its kind anywhere in the country. 
So it, it is groundbreaking and the decision will be groundbreaking. So we, we took discovery back at, during the fall. We were in Indianapolis the first week of January taking depositions. Um, and so we filed our motion for summary judgment at the end of January. And the state, according to the schedule, had um, until week before last to file their brief, which they filed. We are now working on our reply. And then the state gets a SIR reply, which is due the uh, 20th of April. So the 20th of April, the case will be submitted to the court. We've also made a motion for a preliminary injunction. And the we've, reason we've asked for that is because we're not giving our judge a long time to make a ruling here. And this is a complicated case. We would rather her get it right than get it quick. Okay. Um, so we've made a motion for preliminary injunction asking the court to enjoin the enforcement and the implementation of the law pending a ruling on our in our case. Okay. Uh, so you're basically saying that because it's a complex case and uh, usually they don't always is it, they always get a sur reply uh, in uh, in federal court. Well, in this case, it was the case is going to be submitted on on cross motions for summary judgment, and by that I mean we're moving for summary judgment and the state's moving for summary judgment. Okay, so what's the basis of their summary judgment? How are they saying? Are they saying you don't have standing? What are they, what are they trying? How, what's their no. argument? No, they're not. They're not saying that. What we've got here is the the facts really aren't in dispute. It's it's the the law and what law applies here and how do you apply the law. It's a legal issue. It's and these are legal arguments we're making. The facts we largely stipulated with the state, or they stipulated with us to the right. facts of the case. So, but so what what are they what, what are they standing on? Uh, I mean, what, what how can they? What's the basis of their their asking for summary judgment? Just that we're the government, we have the right to do this. So they 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 write that out in papers. Uh, they, they basically... Well, it, it took forty eight pages to say that. Um, they're they're saying that we're the government, and that the government gets the benefit of the doubt, and because we can show a rational basis for what we've done, we win. Okay, so so they they they're, they're saying they they have the benefit of the doubt. Okay, so that's kind of uh, that they're, and that's kind of the, it would be the same argument against a temporary injunction too. Right, but the temporary injunction is a different standard, totally different standard. Um, we have to show for a temporary injunction or preliminary injunction that harm. Yeah, we have to show harm. We have to show that we have a substantial likelihood of prevailing, and that. Um, the harm that we will suffer is um, irreparable. Right. And, and certainly, I think if the deadline passes and we can never get a permit, that's irreparable harm. Yeah, I think that the the harm is is easy to prove. Then the uh, the the likely to prevail um, is uh, that that's harder because you're saying it's it's going to be precedent setting. So uh, in a precedent setting case, you can it's harder to say that it's you're likely to prevail. Uh, but I think the harm is overwhelming where the judge would have to say that if she doesn't uh, doesn't protect them, that the harm will be it will be immediate. So so there's a good I, I would guess that you, you think there's a good chance for your temporary injunction to succeed. We, we hope so. We certainly we certainly are confident in that. Now, shifting to the state case, 
um, they are behind us as far as getting discovery done. Um, I don't think they've taken really any discovery yet in the state case because it's only been filed since the middle of December. When, However, you, say, when you say take discovery, are you talking about the state or are you talking about uh, the, the vapors? The, the vapors. Has the state taken any discovery? Um, the state took uh, Troy LeBlanc's deposition and that was it. Okay. So so in the state case, even though Troy was the catalyst of the federal, they've they've also taken his deposition. No, they took his deposition in the federal case. Okay, so we're or we're we're talking about state or federal now. Is the state asking for uh, you know, discovery now or I I don't know what the is I'm not Okay. Tune with what the state's doing. The, the state took Troy LeBlanc's deposition um as the corporate representative of Legato and Derby Sigs in the federal case back in January. Okay. Um, I don't think there's been any discovery or minimal discovery done in the state case simply because that case was so recently filed. Now, they do have an, a, a, they have a preliminary injunction hearing in the state case April 18th. Okay. And so do you think that's... What's your uh, evaluation of that? Well, I've, I mean, I've read the motion for their motion for preliminary injunction. The state has not filed a response yet, so I don't know what their position is formally, although I can kind of speculate that it's going to be similar to what they said in our case. Which is where, where the government, we get to do We can it. do this. We can do this, yes. And so how would a judge normally take a look at that? I mean, is there... There must be precedent on that argument, right? That there, that we're the government, uh, we get to do it. Does does that usually is that enough to, to to pass muster usually? Or well, I mean, a lot of these cases, the government wins. However, I think in our case, the, in a lot of these cases, the government can show some rational basis for what it did. Is an example in Indiana. It's a fairly recent case up there. Um, they they have this quirky aspect of their alcohol laws that groceries, convenience stores cannot sell, uh, mini marts, etc. cannot sell cold beer, but packaged liquor stores can. And there's something with Sundays too, isn't there? I think there's something with Sundays too, and they, I know they can't sell on Christmas Day, and it's, it's they, you know, the liquor laws are, in many places are strange, but th- this one case dealt with the cold beer. And the grocers, mini-mart owners, etc., sued, claiming that this violated equal protection. And the, and the courts ruled that there's a distinguishment. Yes, that it's treat, the treatment is unequal, but there's a rational basis for it because of the fact that um, you have different regulatory standards governing package stores versus um, retail sto- other retail stores. And they hung their hat on that. In our case, I think it's—I don't think it's quite as clear cut, um, because the state has said in, in their motion, in their response to our motion, that um, there's a reason for the distinguishment because the big tobacco e-liquid manufacturing is done in regulated facilities, and it's under FDA regulations. Well, no, it's not. And and. They're not making the tobacco companies aren't making their e-liquids at the same facilities they make the cigarettes. They're outsourcing it. Some of it's made in China. We don't know what's going in it. 
Yeah, I think uh, V2, uh, which is a large manufacturer of Sigalikes, is the the e-liquids e are tested, but they're made in China. Um, I'm right. pretty sure so, about that. But they're not made. The point is, they're not made in the same facility where the cigarettes are made. Right. There is no uh, the, there is no FDA standard that's been approved for anything in electronic cigarettes in any regard. And, it, and there certainly, at this point, is not best practices even for cigarettes. The, right. The, the FDA does not go in and inspect the cigarette facility to make sure it follows best practices. I think they do. I think they're. I, I've read some stuff on cigarettes, but that's that's just a that's a, a rabbit hole. We don't need to go down. Uh, but but certainly they don't for e-liquids. Right. There's. I mean, right now the FDA doesn't even have control over the uh, the products. They they they're attempting to make them. They're attempting to deem them in their wheelhouse but they're right now they're not even in their wheelhouse right and and so there is no regulation and that's one of the the, the pegs that the state hung its hat was that we want to avoid creating an overlap of regulation that the um sigalites already are regulated as far as the manufacturing goes we're simply regulating on our end uh an area that's not personally regulated that's not true none of it's regulated yeah, so that's going back to the PBS video thing that I was trying to point out, is that they, in there, Yoder is making the argument that, oh, well, yeah, he should do that. He should go after them because that would be the only fair thing to do. And then uh, he also disavowed any tobacco uh, allegiances and stuff. And at one point, I think if my memory works, is that uh, he was saying that... Uh, if he were to go after the, the tobacco companies, it would be difficult to do. So he actually was making the case that the reason why this law was going to, into effect for the e-liquids is because they could pull it off, that there was going to be less resistance. And if they were to try to go after the tobacco companies, that it would be a, a much higher hurdle. Does that help out at all or not? I think the term, I think the phrase he used was it would be a bit of bloody fight. Um it does in some ways, yes. Now, the, the, unfortunately, the standard is um, the, the, the government can piecemeal regulations. It can take on one bite at a time instead of taking one big bite, huge bite, all at one time. It can, it can you know, piecemeal this as far as its regulations go. I'm not exactly following that. The, the law is that if the, the and this is why it's so difficult on an equal protection or due process claim is that the state can, if it has a rational basis for doing so, regulate one part of an industry and let other parts go unregulated and do it at its own pace. Okay, so there's nothing. But, yeah, go ahead. But the difference is there has to be a rational distinction between what it regulates and what it doesn't regulate. So they can't just basically kill Joe and leave Mark alone, uh, something like that. <laughs> they they no. can't. They can't. You can't write a law just to kill a few people. Uh, you you have to. It has to be some some fair basis of it, or there has to be some rational basis for it. And I know I cited in, in our brief a, a line of cases from back in the seventies, and I'm going to show my age here. Um, these refer these were, were, were called the filled milk cases um, that years ago filled milk 
which is milk that has been taken and has been processed and the butter fat has been removed and soy substitutes, protein substitutes have been added to it. Um, mill not milk, if you've ever heard of that, that's, that's filled milk. There were laws that were in place that did not allow filled milk, what was called filled milk, but allowed the same process to be used for things like nutritional supplements, baby formula. And the courts ruled in these cases, there were a series of cases back in the mid-70s, that that was an um, impermissible distinction, that they really essentially were the same product. So they had to remove the law because it was going to affect the baby the, formulas? The, law, the laws at the federal level in, in, in several states were declared unconstitutional. No, because they were allowing baby formula and, and nutritional supplements that were essentially filled milk products. Right. Same process, but weren't not allowing you to sell it like in the grocery section, in the, milks, in the, in the canned milk section uh, of this same product. Well, on the federal side, they're, they're kind of still doing that because that sounds to me like uh, a lot of these laws and states are, are – if you look at the language, you read the papers, they, they say that if it is approved by the FDA for, tobacco, uh, for cessation, then the law doesn't apply. Right, right. Um, Will that hold F up? Will that hold up or is that, is that challengeable? That, that's that's a no, whole other issue that we'll have to come to it another day if okay. and when the FDA ever issues the deeming regs. No, but I'm talking about the, the laws in the states. Like in California, they, they are going after vapor products, but they, they totally and specifically carve out any product that is approved by the FDA for cessation. So they carve out uh, patches and and. Anything uh, like a nicotrol inhaler is carved out. You can you can vape an, uh, even though it's not vaping per se, but you can use a nicotrol inhaler inside wherever you want because it's FDA approved. Right, and they have to almost do that because those are those fall under the drug jurisdiction of the FDA. Right. Does that? But is it? Can we challenge on that? Is that a weakness in their armor? Uh, because they're using that as a, they're carving that out. Does that? Does that help out anything? Or they're, is that? They're they're carving it out because they almost have to. But can it be because, challenged? Can it be? Can does that? Is that a legal weakness of theirs that they're carving that out? Can you, can that be a basis of a lawsuit? You. I mean, anybody who's got the filing fee can challenge it. Whether it would have legs is a different story. Um, it probably would not have legs because I think the argument you're going to hear back from them is we've done this because there's a concept called preemption. And once the federal government has spoken in areas of commerce, once the federal government has taken and, and pitched its flag, then it rules. And the state cannot then adopt a policy that is contrary to the federal policy. But, but, Alcohol is legal, and then you have dry counties. How does that work? Well, alcohol is a totally different animal because in most of your alcohol laws, if you look at them, date back to the mid-30s, the end of Prohibition. And if yes. you know anything about the history of the 21st Amendment, it was a compromise. And it, the compromise was, was that the federal government would repeal the 18th Amendment and repeal the Volstead Act, they would put control of intoxicating beverages in the state's hands, and the states could deal with them as they saw fit. 
That's why you can have dry counties in, like in Kentucky. We even have dry precincts. Within a wet county, we have dry precincts. Right. And even to the extent that the racetrack here, the Horse Churchill Downs, has its own separate individual voting precinct to ensure that it never gets voted dry. Okay, so I think I've driven us a little bit in the weeds. So, so going back to the state, you're saying I think it was the 18th of April is when it, it's being heard. Uh, the, uh, the temporary injunction is going to be heard on the state level? Yes, 18th of April, um, up in Indianapolis. And the and state has not responded yet to that because do, doesn't, doesn't it usually work that they, you file a motion, the state gets a chance, and then you get another chance back at them? And so the state hasn't even come back yet? The, the state has not filed a response to my knowledge yet. That but, doesn't mean that they're not going to but, before the hearing. But doesn't the 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 plaintiff in this case, uh, the state, uh, don't they get another? Don't they get to respond to what the state says? They have they have to have a certain amount of time to do that. I think it's ten days usually. Usually it's seven to ten days. Um, you know, again, the state the state could file a response tomorrow, and they still the. Plaintiffs are still going to have their period to do this. I don't know what their time period is in Indiana or what their scheduling mechanism is up there. Okay, so in, in some of the seven to the ten is I think it's the, the account for mailing, but if you deliver it by hand, you can get around some of that. Um, or if you electronically file it, it has something to do with that too. Yeah, so, yeah, but so 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 go so right. So going to the eighteenth, so there'll be a decision made by a judge in Indiana to whether a temporary injunction can be put on. So either if the temporary injunction is put on, then uh, I guess the, the, the July 1st thing is thrown out uh, or the clock is frozen. Um, right. Or the court says you don't get your injunction and it moves forward as is. Right. So either, yeah, it'll either work or not. Uh, And and so, um, do, I, I'm not. I might have already asked this. But what's your guess to, to your, what's your best uh, coin flip on whether that injunction will work or not? Your, um, your low confidence I, I guess. Learned, I learned. A, I learned a long time ago that litigation is like spitting in the wind. You never know what's going to happen. Sometimes it blows in front of you. Sometimes it blows back in your face. You just never know. And right. it's it's hard, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, you know the equities. My argument would be the if I'm arguing the Indiana case. Uh, my equities, my argument is going to be the equities weigh in favor of putting this on hold until we know whether it's legal. Because if it's not legal and then we win later, it, it's a hollow victory because we'll never be able to apply. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You should give it an injunction because, you know, the way the law is written, it says that if you don't have it in by the 30th, then you're for, you know, July, June 30th, then you're forevermore out of the game. So yeah, it is a real penalty. It's kind of like a death penalty case, I guess. Bad analogy, but. Well, it it really is. Um, And, you know, I've never seen anything like this before, a legislation like this where, you know, you have a drop dead date that if you don't get your permit by that certain day, you can never get it. I've never seen that before. Well, is it is it a corollary to uh, like in New York? There's certain tobacco uh, saloons that that are grandfathered in, and then once they're grandfathered in, you, so long as the original owner is the owner, you can't transfer it. That so long as you, you know, 
you can stay that way. Isn't it kind of like that? It's different because in the respect that those people already had permits and they're simply saying you can keep going as long as your, you know, go your business operates. This is a barrier to entry. Right. So they're making it illegal for new participants and, and, and while it's legal for the licensees. Yeah, it's, it's messed up. It's definitely it, messed up. It's discriminatory in the respect that if someone comes along with a new e-liquid product, that's a better, they built a better mousetrap, so to speak. Um, there's a barrier to, for, for them even entering the market unless they can find a existing licensee who will deal with their product. Right. Yeah, and the, I, prob- the problem there is if you create, from an economic standpoint, if you create a limited number of people with licenses, then the state is allowing a certain handful of people to pick winners and losers. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm saying that for $1,000, I mean, it's it's better than going to a weekend in Vegas. I filed my application in Indiana, and I might, you know, if I'm the only person that makes it through, you know, I control the state. Uh, I assume other people are going to be doing this, but it's uh, it's it, as far as a gamble, it's a pretty good gamble. I think that that e-liquid makers should be doing it. Uh, uh, and if they do, based off of this show, I want to cut. But uh, it's uh, it's it's a really hard call for me to tell people to do it. One, knowing that the state may or may not grant the application, um, and, and I can tell you, if I was advising the ATC. I would advise the ATC not to grant the permits because you've got litigation going on and people are it's being heavily watched. So ATC again is Alcohol Tobacco Commission, uh, and that's unique to Indiana. Well, every state has a agency, but the, the, but we're talking about Indiana's ATC. Correct. That's so, that's it's, that's the agency that um, regulates. Grants the liquor licenses, the tobacco licenses, etc. Right, so they, they're at the they're at the back of the chain. So you, you're saying that that it would be, you know, for the for the people there, it makes sense to just not approve any of them because then it forces the issue, and then it's going to get kicked out and probably fixed rather than trying to. That's kind of, it's internal politics to them. I think I understand what you're saying though. That that if they decline everything, it'll probably make their job simpler because it's going to force it back into the courts. Well, from a practical standpoint, um, and this is an issue that really can't be forgotten, the ATC is thinly stretched to begin with. I mean, they're like any other government bureaucracy. They're underfunded and understaffed and overworked. They have jurisdiction and and responsibility for all alcohol and tobacco permitting in the entire state of Indiana. They have to enforce that. They've had a new industry cast on their, thrown on their plate without any new funding for resources or manpower. Um, I mean, they're about as excited to get to do this as you are when you find out you've got to have a tooth filled. Yeah. I mean, they've they've been told to, to, uh, uh, put tickets on SUVs only or something. It's it's just a it's it's just a you know it's just they 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 I I think most government workers want to be effective and useful in their jobs and this is something that I don't think is helpful to anybody because if you go back to the interstate commerce clause nothing prevents well let me I this is an important question now 
I am an outside vendor and I want uh, I've got a website and somebody has dialed me up my website and it says uh address to ship to is Indiana. Can I just uh do I have to care about any of this? Can I still uh, send through the mail? Well, uh, under the terms of the uh, of the law, no. Now, practically speaking, is that going to happen? Very likely. There's another there's another issue that we need to um Talk about here. Um, the law, there's also another change in the law that was made this session that sort of has slipped under the radar nobody's talked about. The definition of tobacco product that was already in existence was amended last year by the enactment to define a tobacco product as any product, including e-liquid, that contained tobacco. Well, as we all know, e-liquid does not contain tobacco. Well, wait a second. St- st- rewind that. S- say it again. The law that was passed last year defined the, the, the existing law in Indiana defined what a tobacco product was. Last oh. year's enactment amended that law to add that a tobacco product were certain things, including e-liquid that contained tobacco. Okay, so there, there was a definition in Indiana of what a tobacco product was, and in 2015, they put in also electronic cigarette products. Right. O- only the open system products, not the closed system products. Okay, so go ahead. That Obviously, we challenged that because they're regulating e-liquids as tobacco products, even though they don't contain any tobacco. Just based on the general definition they used, we challenged it. So there was another law that was passed this year that nobody's talked about that modifies that definition to remove the term tobacco and insert the term nicotine. Okay, so now, it, when you say nobody's talked about, it, isn't this the thing that just was passed and it's people? No, been talk- no, this was this was a separate standalone bill that was it was part of another bill that was passed. When did this pass, and what what number was it? If you know it, it off, I think it was House Bill one thirty five or thir- thirteen or eleven thirty five. I believe is what it was. Okay, it, it passed, and it's no one's really had talked has talked about it. Um, and so it changed all of the the existing laws that that were for tobacco, and the one that was which means the one that was amended in 2015, and it struck it struck out tobacco and it put in the word nicotine essentially. All it did, all this did, and this other other it was part again part of an omnibus bill. Um, this one provision changed the definition of tobacco product by eliminating the word tobacco in conjunction with e-liquid and inserting the word nicotine. So what this means is now, bottled e-liquids that contain nicotine are classified as tobacco products, but, and this is important, bottled e-liquids that contain zero nicotine will not be regulated as as tobacco products. Right. practically speaking, the state of Indiana does not regulate nicotine as a standalone item. So what I think e-liquid manufacturers are going to do to get around this and to get around all the security provisions and all of this stuff is that it's going to, they're going to sell bottled e-liquids with zero nicotine 
and sell ampules of nicotine in certain concentrations to the customers, tell the customers to go out to your car and mix it, shake it up, and you can come back in and vape it. But uh, how are they going to sell the ampules of nicotine? It's a tobacco product then. And nicotine, they... No, 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 no. Nicotine alone is not, a, is not considered a tobacco product and is not regulated. It is not sold as a mixed product. It is sold as a standalone product. But it's going to have to be pure nicotine without any base carrier because I think if you have – it would be an e-liquid still because it's, it's going to be in a, in a PG and VG base. So it would, be, it would actually be an e-liquid to mix no, together. No, what I'm talking about is that the retailers will sell if – you, if you come into an Indiana retail store and you want e-liquid, bottled e-liquid with nicotine, you're going to get two things. You're going to get a bottle of e-liquid that has PG, VG flavorings, right? Nothing else, right? And a separate, separate ampule of nicotine. I, nicotine. I, is it going to be like in a crystallized form, or I, I'm just not no, sure it, if it, it would actually it'll mix. Liquid. It'll be liquid, but they'll be in different concentrations, and the customer will have to mix it themselves. And if they do that, then you're not selling. The retailer is not selling a regulated e-liquid. Well, I'm just saying that it's going to have to be without it's it's going to have to be pure pure nicotine without a base uh, because I think if it once they put it in a base, it's just going to be considered another e-liquid. Um, so it, it would have to be absolutely 100% pure nicotine, uh, I think. But and see, I think this is really dangerous because people people are going to try to get around the law. I mean, that's that's right. Things that's how we do things. Um, you know, how do you think we got the mafia? How do you think we got bootleggers? People trying to get around prohibition. People are going to try to get around this law, and they're going to come up with creative ways. And, yeah, and but, but Mike, yeah, I but, understand that because essentially what you just described is what I hear that some people are doing, attempting in Chicago. It's, Chicago is another really bad situation where they, terrible. yeah. So they essentially that is that if if for a bottle of e-liquid. It, there's an $18 tax on it. So if you normally were selling your bottle of e-liquid uh, 30 mils for $18, you just got a 100% tax. So the only way to sell it the same way would be charge your customer $36. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, no easy answers here. But I don't think that's work. I'm not sure if that's even going to work in Chicago. Um, I, I don't think it's safe. I don't, I don't, and I don't advocate doing it. I'm just saying practically it's what's going to happen. Because people are going to try to get around this, I don't advocate it, obviously, because it you know would be I think unsafe. But again, people are going to do it. So when does your injunction uh, come in to be heard? Uh, we're not going to have a hearing per se, like they're going to have in, in the state. Ours is being submitted on briefs, and and ours will be submitted the twentieth of April, and we're going to ask the court to give us a quick ruling on the injunction. And put this on hold, pending the outcome of the case. So we may not get a decision in the ultimate case until after July first. Right. But if the injunction is in place, we're asking the court to maintain the status quo. Right. It's, it's just ex- yeah, exactly like a death penalty. You 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 want the person not to be executed because uh, you know they'll be dead and under any appeals process. Yeah. Once uh, once they're dead, you can't bring them back. Right. So so again, so the state motion for uh 
temporary injunction that would stop all of the the pain on on July 30th or sorry uh, June 30th uh, J- July 1 that goes in the state one goes in on the 18th and yours goes in on the 20th and right. what it, and yours is federal I so suspect- so either either of them succeeding uh will will be a huge uh, salvation to the state well it will help now again the Indi- the state case they're asking that the court to enjoin it, um, and the court can do several things. The court can enjoin it with respect to Indiana only, and it not affect out of state. That would that would make no practical sense because again, you're creating a unfair situation. Actually, I think if that were to occur, it would increase our chances of getting an injunction in the federal case because then we're going to have two separate um, frameworks. Right. Uh, so it will be decided on, on the 18th for the state temporary injunction. Is that correct? The, the, court, the court can do several things. The court can take it under advisement and issue a written ruling, uh, which you know it can do take its time to do. The court can rule from the bench and say, I'm going to grant this injunction and then write up an order. Um, the, you know, the court can simply say, we're going to take it under advisement and make no decision then at, at time of the hearing, the judge can say, I'm going to grant this injunction and then write it up and, and, and issue it. Um, we may or may not know when that hearing is concluded what's going to happen. Yeah, but I think that I, I think a reasonable judge would uh, protect it because they know, because of the implications of the way the law is written, they, that they would have to stop it. And the harm is the harm is going to happen for sure. Uh, if they don't do something, I, I suppose they could, they could, uh, but again, they, they only have, the court only has till the 29th, uh, because on the 29th is the last day that they can get the application in with the 60 day window. Uh, well, or, the, the, the ATC has up to 60 days. And, you know, if I were telling someone that's going to submit an application, I would tell them to not go do it after April 30th because there's a chance you might not get it approved in time. Um, you know, would I tell you to submit it on May 1st? No. I think it needs to be done by April 30th if you're going to do it to guarantee that you get a decision by the drop-dead date. Right. I mean, that that's the only safe date, but, you know, if you miss it, you should still put it in all the way up until June 30th. Uh, or if you're just a gambler and you want to you risk a thousand bucks, you should do it. Um I think you're risking more than a thousand bucks. I mean, because you're risking your entire business. Well, if if you have, well, what do you mean? Because the other guy can sue you, and other license holder can sue you. No, you run the risk that you don't get um, the application. So you've spent your money, and you run the risk that your business in Indiana shut out. Well, that's what I'm saying is that you're better off risking the $1,000 because you're going to get shut out if you don't get an application. Uh, maybe we're talking in different circles. Uh, I'm not sure. No, I think, I think, we're, I think we're talking about the same thing. Um, I think I'm seeing a bigger risk than you're seeing. What, 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 besides the $1,000, what's the risk? The risk is if you apl- apply but you don't imply, apply in time and you don't get your permit, 
then you're shut out of Indiana. Oh, right, right. What I'm saying is that for a thousand dollars for a big e say say, and this is just uh, it has nothing to do with Cutwood, but they're just a, a they're just a large e liquid num- uh, name that that people can say the word Cutwood. Uh, so if I were Cutwood, I would put in an application before April 29th uh, because just to do it. And, and then because I'd want my name in the hat uh, just in case. Um, that's what I would do. I think it would be, it's, it's a worthwhile thing. But anyway, that, that's where I'm probably going off on something that's more of interest to me than, than necessarily everybody else. So no, I, these, these are important things for people to consider um, because people are going to have to make a business decision coming here up here in the next you know couple of weeks and, and certainly if you're going to apply and this is what i'll tell people quite honestly if you're going to apply fine if you're not going to apply fine but if you do know that if you get your permit there's a chance you're going to be buying yourself a lawsuit i think people need to know that going in up front that's a that's a, a quirky part of this law that but I understand the lawsuit. But we, the the one way you could, if if you're just in it, what, what would they sue you for? Because you you applied for a license, they can sue you just for your application. They, if you get the permit, like I said earlier, if ABC E Liquid Company applies for and gets a permit, right? And XYZ E Liquid Company also has a permit. XYZ could sue ABC under this law, challenging. Um, the validity of their application, whether they meet the requirements of the law, and challenge the ATC's granting of that permit. So, if but if the person just said and walked, it's basically said after they received the lawsuit, they say they just say we give up our, our permit, then then it's over with, right? That's all they can ask for. Well, I mean, yeah. And before they sued, they'd basically have to ask them to to give it up. And then if they just gave it up, then isn't no, that... they don't. No, actually, they don't have to even do that. They they the, the way the law is written, they could sue the the XYZ e liquid company that has a Indiana permit could sue any other permittee to challenge whether they met the requirements for the permit. Yeah, and that's the thing that I that that. So maybe my thousand dollars won't get spent anymore. Uh, but that, that that the the part that I read in the law, which scared the heck out of me, is the prevailing party uh, court costs are awarded. So it, it's just a like I called it the first time I saw it. I called it a license to sue uh, because you can have anybody. You know, you could have one person with a license, and they can just start suing everybody, and and just hand it off to every single court. Uh, I mean, every every, sing, every sing, single type of ambulance chaser. A great point. And let me tell you my opinion and what I think is going to happen. I'm sort of my, got my crystal ball out here. Um, the company that the e-liquid company that in Indiana that has lobbied to get this law passed has got a lot invested in this process. And I will predict right here, right now, that. Any company that else that gets a permit will get sued by this particular liquid company. That's yeah. my prediction. I, I, that's where I was going. That's what I've been saying. Yeah, it's a license to sue. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's open season. And, and that's why in my last show I laid out the scenario why I was freaking out last year uh, is because I think that the peak, biggest people in jeopardy are uh, the, the vape shops. Uh, and they they are going to be the collateral damage that that is hit on this because 
under one best case scenario is that people are still going to mail it in. Uh, they're they're going to be able to mail in the e-liquids uh, if if they want. Uh, but well, if it doesn't happen, if it, if even under some scenarios that the 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 universe of all the different flavors that are going to be able to be sold inside of uh, of uh, Indiana is going to be maybe ten flavors uh, or ten ten companies or, or less. And so when you go into a vape shop, they're all going to have the same inventory. So then it's just going to be a gigantic price war, and then you know the the biggest supermarket just kills all the little independent groceries. Uh, I, I I don't see it, the vape shops will just die on the vine real fast if, if this law goes into effect. I agree with you. Uh, and and another issue too is going to be enforcement. Um, this is going to be very difficult for the ATC to enforce. Why? Well, as I said earlier, they're already stretched thin, and you've got a multitude of vape shops and retailers across the state of Indiana. The, the state of Indiana and the ATC cannot interdict the U.S. mail or common carriers. So right. how are they to stop online and direct sales to customers? Well, all, all you need to do is, and, and this is kind of where I was going to go, what is the jeopardy to uh, a California vendor uh, just uh, shipping Indiana? So we got California vendor mails into Indiana. Uh, and so all you need to do is have a license holder start ordering these products from uh, from the California vendor into their shop uh, because they're they're both a manufacturer and a retail location. So they start ordering these products in. They come into this vape shop, uh, the one in Indiana. So California sends into Indiana. The people that are ordering it are the license holders, and they've got a perfect chain of custody of of the product being sold into Indiana and then they sue the people back in California under this law is that is isn't that possible that's that's possible but again i can see a scenario where a creative lawyer somewhere out in California or or wherever these e-liquid companies uh, are are located out of Indiana creating a multitude of shell companies where one company handles the liquid, one company handles the money, one company owns the IP the, the IP address, the website, um, and they drop ship it uh, from a P.O. box that you trace back to a fourth company. You know, I can see someone who really wants to get creative here. Yeah, I, I think that... The, up where, there's, where there's no way that this can ever be traced back, um, and if they do trace it back, you just simply set up a new shop someplace else. I agree that there there is I mean that's a that's a hell of a lot of defense systems for the state of Indiana which I don't even know what percentage of the country's vaping there are it's it's going to be 150th or 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 in you know maybe it's 125th but it's I don't think it's it's not the largest market in the world um, No it's it's not but I can tell you But there there go ahead tell me There's going to be people who are going to do things to try to get around this law I mean that's just oh, Right, but there, there, there is there are companies that that are kind of clearing houses of. Uh, do you have Bevmos over there, uh, or, or uh, they're kind of like the Costco, the online Costcos. Uh, they, they, there are companies that sell, uh, say, fifty national brands, and, and they ship to every state in the country. If I, I think that, 
if if you're going to go after if you're a license holder and you want to catch these companies shipping into Indiana, you would just order from these large ones and you would just take out the large ones. There's going to be a ton of little small ones that are going to get that are going to do it, but you'll be able to sue the bigger people and that's all that that uh the 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 license holder will still be able to go after the deep pockets and so the only it's a coin flip if you're a smaller online seller whether you want to take the risk of shipping into indiana or not um right uh, i mean there'll be all sorts of enforcement issues that we're gonna have to deal with uh or the state's gonna have to deal with um you know, this law becomes effective in a couple months. Right. Um, so I, th- I think we've, we've talked about much of it. And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, I wanted to talk to Troy today because, uh, I mean, I, I think he was the catalyst and he, and he put his money behind this federal lawsuit. So I wanted to, to talk to him. And uh, his company, again, is uh, what, what's his company? It's Derby Sigs is his retail company. Uh, his distribution company is Dark Market. Okay, so those are you know D- uh, Derby Sigs and Dark Market are I mean the, the guy behind those companies has has been the catalyst. I don't know if I should say how much money he's put into it. Uh, I assume a lot. Uh, and now that there's this other the, the right to be smoke free uh, people are on there. Now I want to talk. Uh, let me before I cut it. Uh, the, the right to be smoke free coalition. I'm looking at the site. They've got Cosmic Fog, Vapor Shark, Mount Baker Vapor, Nickwood, uh, Nick Goulist, uh, Alien, and Greg Ober, uh, Cherryland, Tony Reed, uh, Cheryl, and Tony Reed. Uh, Evan uh, McMahon, Steve Nair, uh, Alan Joseph, Jonathan Lee of Kilo, uh, Ruthless, uh, and Vapor Bar with Shell Hamill, Buckshot, right. Nickwood, uh, Mount Baker Vapor. W- what what are all these people doing, and how does how do they relate into what y- you are doing? The right to be smoke free coalition. How we're do- both we're, we're both going down the same path here. Um, are they you? Are are they are they are 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 they you? Or are they are they another thing? They are another thing. And again, they they joined into the lawsuit. They intervened in the lawsuit um, late in the summer, uh, around Labor Day, and they are represented by um, Eric Gotting and Azim Chowdhury at the Keller Heckman firm in Washington D.C. Yeah, I know Azim pretty well. He's he's kind of I, I call him the 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 scholar of of, of Esig history uh, of, of of the legal scholar of Esig history. He's been uh, he's been writing on Esigs. You can go back to 2011 and he's publishing papers about it. He he's I'm very impressed with the guy. I, and, and a lot of people know who Azim is. He's the lawyer for AMSA and uh, he's done. If if anybody's read the public comments. Uh, you definitely want to read Azim's, uh, the ones from AMSA. They're very, very good. So you, you, Troy started this case. You are, were effect, uh, effectuated. I guess. Uh, you, you were helping Troy. And then th- this group of people saw your lawsuit and then are saying, we, we too, uh, us too, we, we, they're, they're coming in and saying, we support your lawsuit. And they're, is that what they're doing? Yes, absolutely. They've joined in. We're working together. We're working on the same side here. And um, for instance, the summary judgment motion that we filed, we filed jointly. Okay. Um, all the briefing we're doing, we, we're doing jointly. So um, obviously, it combines our efforts. It combines our um, our brain power and our our resources, and it cuts down on the cost. It's it's more efficient to do it that way. Um, right. And. 
you know they're bringing they're bringing the big players to the table. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's been it's been great working with Azim and working with Eric. It's been it's been really a, a pleasure working with them. Very easy to work with those guys. Uh, they've been brought a wealth of knowledge into this case, and um, you know we we got this ball rolling. They've sort of jumped on with us, and we're we're both pushing this thing together. Um, the summary judgment motion was an equal effort. I mean, I wrote part of it. They wrote part of it. We worked right. on it. We edited it. Um, and what we filed, which was I think was a very good work product, was a combination of our work and our input. Yeah. And so uh, when, when I've brought this up on, on my last, I've gotten feedback from two groups of people, uh, some that, that uh, you know, thought I had some points and, and, and some people that I did have some other points. So uh, I, I think that you, you're right down the middle. I mean, is it? Uh, how do I phrase it? Uh, are there some things that you should tell me about how I got it wrong as far as Evan um, and and things like that? Are there some things that you want to to uh, tell me uh, and whoever is listening to this? Uh, well, I, I mean, I want I, I I I honestly, my mother raised me as best as she could, and I try and be the most fair person. So if I need to be corrected, uh, you know, give give me some balance if if I was uh, if I stepped out too far or, or well, not, and. I, I, I promise I'm not going to take you to the woodshed. Um, you know, I, and I got, I've got sort of in on the, toward the end of this discussion and dialogue you, you all have had back and forth. Um, you know, I agree with you on some aspects and I agree with Evan on some aspects. Um, you know, obviously hindsight always is 2020 and uh, in, in most everything we do. And, you know, could things have been handled differently last year in the lobbying efforts it could have, uh, certainly, you know, what I've done things differently. Yeah, probably. Um, but I think the point that everybody needs to remember here is whatever was done can't be fixed, but I really don't think it would have mattered because I think this law was going to get rammed through no matter what was said or done. Yeah. And that's a fair point because it, what I was describing is, uh, Screaming bloody more uh, the phrase the exact I like analogies that the phrase I use scream bloody more murder before your throat is slit the 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 other way that analogy goes is the knife was coming uh, and, and you're you're it didn't matter if you screamed you're still going to get whacked um, so that's kind of essentially what you just said is that even if uh, if it was handled differently uh, it, it it the uh, the fate was already the cards have been dealt the fate has already happened uh, so. That's a fair point. I, I appreciate that. And I don't think that anything anybody did or didn't do really made any difference. This was going to happen no matter what efforts the industry put forward to stop it. And, and a good argument for that point is I just wa I watched, you know, I watched live. This lady said, I put in this amendment. Uh, you know, I didn't know this amendment was going to do this. All I want you to do is take out my amendment. And she was voted down. So, I mean, well, it's, it's... it's a little history behind there that, uh, you know, really some subtleties that, that your listeners might not know about and you may not know about. Probably. The senator who is the chair of the Indi the public policy committee in the Senate, the security company that supposedly is the only one who's going to comply and qualify is in his district in Lafayette, Indiana. Okay. Now you see where this is coming from. So the the guy that who, which guy was that again? Alton. And and who? But what, what was the I I I, I didn't. I, 
say that again. I missed kind of the, the, the... The chair of the Senate Public Policy Committee, which was the committee where this um, recent amendment originated. Uh-huh. Okay. Anything that involves alcohol, tobacco, gambling, anything like that has to come through his committee. Right. The security company that we've talked about um, that everybody believes is the only one that's going to comply now is from his district in Lafayette, Indiana. Right. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. the, the, the senator from Evansville that you were referring to is the one who introduced this amendment. Yoder. We, we know it was Becker. Okay. We believe that Senator Becker was goaded into doing this, not knowing what the ramifications were going to be. That she introduced it in committee, and, and the committee chair did not did allowed a limited amount of um, of hearing on this, a limited amount of testimony on this. Right. It got voted through, and once she realized what had happened and that she essentially had been had, right, tried to walk it back, right, and he would not allow it. Yeah, and then and then because it was weird because when I was watching it live, there was like three different motions, uh, and and they they sounded very similar, and and the first one failed, and then uh, you know there were there was some pretty good passionate. Uh, it was about. Two thirds, one third is how the votes were going down. Uh, but then she got up there and she said, she put together that other that motion. I guess her name's Becky. You just said, it. and she said, I didn't know, you know, and I want this to be gone. And when I'm watching it, I'm going, well, there, there's the person that put in the amendment. She's she's saying to everybody, it wasn't her intention, and and it's just a vote on just that one item. You would think that it would pass, and they didn't do it. Uh, so. Well- which tells me that this was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, and that's a good argument for it. It's it's it's. Uh, I like to double check things, and and that's that's a pretty solid argument that uh, if Evan would have uh, been just going after people left and right on that PBS show and and doing whatever else that uh, that there was enough power behind. Uh, you know, a, a, a semi truck. You know, you can only, you can only, even if you get on the the brakes real fast on a semi, you're not going to be able to stop it. Uh, and that's kind well, of. You know, there's also the the point to be made too is that when you're on a public show like that, that's really an educational opportunity for a lot of people who don't know about vaping, and for a lot of people, it may be their first exposure to vape the vaping industry. And if you've got a person up there who's waving their arms and screaming and acting crazy. It's going to give the industry a negative perception. Yeah, to, to some. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. You don't want to be crazy. Um, you don't want to. But um, there, there was a certain point where that at that point it there 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 was an appearance that was given to this bill that it was being mitigated by the industry and that the industry was working with the officials and that there was a survivable scenario out of the those negotiations. So my, my issue is that that they should have always been on the stance that this bill there's no way to save it. There's no amendments to make it better and that you can't accept that it was just going to go in and um that you could have you could have made the connections to uh 
Big Tobacco. Uh, and who's this McAllister fellow? I was uh, asked to take a look at him back in 2015. I, I, I know who he is, but how is he connected into all of this? I'm not real certain. That, uh, that's the $64,000 question. Okay, so then that that probably doesn't make sense to even trying to talk to then if if you're not if it's uh, I don't even know how his name came up other than uh, I I was asked to take a look at it but I I'd given that information off so I mean I understand I understand that that there may have been nothing that could have been done but I would have my issue remains is that uh, my understanding is that Indiana still doesn't have a national organization like Safada that they've built around. Um, and that still to me is, is a big learning lesson that you need to get. I know Greg Conley uh, and Brian from Enjoy, I watched them at the hearings, uh, and there were some other people, uh, Brittany uh, Cushman, I think her name, from National Tobacco. Uh, she was speaking against it. And then there was one, that, but there wasn't, the, I think that each state can get picked off unless there's a national organization like Safada. So, uh, well, I agree with that partially, and, and I disagree with it some. Um, let me hear it then. Let me. Let me. We don't in Kentucky, for instance. We don't have a Safada chapter here. Well, what's what's your fucking problem? Why, why not? Well, because let me tell you what we what we did, and and I'm I'm responsible for this, and so is Troy. Last year, we had a legislation going through our assembly. Last year, last year was our short year session, forty five day session, and they were trying to pass a statewide smoking ban that would have included vaping. And it had passed the state house and was on its way to the state Senate. And Troy and I were talking about this, and I says, Troy, you need a lobbyist. And I said, secondly, you need a state trade association so that you're not paying for this on your own. Troy went out and Troy hired a lobbyist out of his own pocket. And it was some, someone that I knew, I would put him in contact with, and our lobbyist, uh, Jason Underwood, is incredible. Jason got this bill within about less than a week sent to a committee, there's some obscure Senate committee that had nothing to do with smoking or, or, or vaping. I think it was like the Senate Veterans Committee, Veterans Affairs Committee. Got it killed. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not years. but I'm not suggesting that inside of a state that the state can't do what they need to do and use the but, lobbyists that they want to do. Well, it, what we was and, and and talk to Troy and, you know, we had, we've got a really good vaping scene here in Kentucky because we don't have really any regulations other than, you know, 18 or over. And um, But the retailers were all really looking out for their own individual interest until we were able to convince them that, guys, we really need to work together because when you go to Frankfurt, to the state capitol, and you want to talk to the legislators, going on your own is not going to get you much anywhere. But when you go together and you have your lobbyist with you, whether you're a trade association, whether you're 25 or 50, if you're a trade association, it makes you look bigger than you really are. And we formed a, a, a trade organization here. It's the, the only state retail association in Kentucky uh, last March. And we've got close to 100 members now statewide. And we do events. We do everybody puts money in every month to, to it for, for dues. We have events. Uh, we have things that raise money. The, the retailers have gotten really tight here, and we've been successful. There were five vaping bills that would have hurt this industry from a tax standpoint, indoor smoking ban, et cetera, this year. None of them got even got committee hearings. 
But I that that that's not in in conflict with using Safada as the national organization and just it because it's Safada the way at least I see it is you have Safada as as your national and then you have states that organize you know a United States of of fifty states that organize right. within themselves and so it's another it's another topic um, uh, but uh, I, I'm let's see uh, I, 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 I go I'm a big advocate for the retailers uh, and their customers organizing and basically working from a position of strength instead of a position of individual weakness. Right, and that's I'm trying to do stuff like that similarly uh, with with uh, working on the FDA as a as a co-op, if you will. Uh, you know, organize people together, and then you know you come at it. You and it's. It just makes sense usually. Um, I know that that Troy was uh, has been affected by uh, Ken uh, Ken uh, Silverman. That's uh, Silverman, right? Uh, Correct. So, I mean, I had uh, I guess they were they were very close. Um, and and yes. pa- apparently, uh, timely passing. It's been a bi- it's been a big hit for a lot of people around here who were really good friends with him, really close with him. Yeah, and and I it's. I, I did not know him personally at all, uh, but uh, I mean, if you look at the impact, of the, there's a lot of people in the industry that uh, that were really uh, connected and, and and really are mourning this guy. So I had tried to have uh, Troy uh, on today, and and I will uh, maybe we'll have a you know a, a better time and talk about some of these other things because until. He reached out. Uh, I didn't know uh, that he was the catalyst of this federal stuff. I didn't know most of these things, and and I appreciate that that he made you uh, or or definitely introduced you uh, into this uh, and made you available because I think what you've said today has been very helpful. Um, I'm trying to think. At, um, the, the I'm pretty good at asking questions, so I'm trying to think of what other questions I need to ask. I, I used people used to ask me to ask questions in, in company all-hand meetings because they were afraid to ask themselves. So I'd have these little Asian ladies writing me notes and telling me to ask these questions. So let me just go through the questions I should ask. If I am a vapor in Indiana, obviously they need to, to work with their shops, I think, is, is that and, and to follow Kassaw. So, but, so then at the next level, if I'm a vape shop, is there, are there suggestions that you would say of what they should do at this point? Well, they, they really need to keep track of what's going on with the litigation because, you know, things are going to move pretty quickly here in the next few weeks. And so what's the best way for Because I'm going to start with, uh, here's the, the groups that I think. There's the vape shops, there's the e-liquid manufacturers inside of uh, Indiana, and then there's the e-liquid manufacturers outside of Indiana. So the first one is the, the individual vape shops. How, where should they go to keep track of this? They, I, I could, I'll be happy to talk to them um, and, and you know deal with them. And Evan is another good resource too. Uh, Evan McMahon. Okay. Um, or is it the state case goes? So, for, but for, so to is I don't know how many how many people that are in Indiana are not. Uh, well, they, everybody should know who who's your vapors. Uh, I mean, right. they've got a Facebook group. So, so if you're a vape shop, they should reach out to them and and ask what's going on and what they can do. Uh, to either Hoosiers and, and, and the, is there a state organization within uh, Indiana besides not that, I'm, not that I'm aware of. Okay. So, uh, so that's what they should do. Uh, and, and that there's that you said they can reach out to you as well. 
I'll be happy to answer anybody's questions about what's going on. And so, as much so as I can talk, I can tell them as much as I can tell them uh, without revealing anything that is, you know, confidential. Well, I'm, I'm looking at real. I mean, because I think that in in what in this, I think it's going to be about two hours. Uh, that in this, what we've talked about, I think there's a real base of information. So I'm really just looking at the the tactical things that a vape shop should do. Not, right. I don't think, I don't think if if, if there's eighty or hundred or I don't know how many vape shops. In Indiana, they they shouldn't all ask for the same information back, but uh, that that they they should it should they go to hearings? I think Hoosier Vapors is the answer for the most part. If you're a vape shop, start with Hoosier Vapors. Contact Evan McMahon. Um, right. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. And I think there's probably going to be a whole gallery full of Indiana vape people at this injunction hearing coming up in a couple of weeks. Okay, so that's that's the other is the. Uh, the federal one, the, the 18th is there's going to be a hearing. So if I, I'm going to suggest this, if you're a vape shop inside of Indiana, there's going to be a courtroom where this is going to be heard. And if you can flood the door and make it, you know, show up and to where it's over capacity and the judge knows full well that there, that his courtroom was full and this does actually impact people. Because the judge is going to be asked, should a temporary injunction be put in to save people that will be affected immediately? Should they be protected? So if that courtroom is full, it's going to be really apparent to the judge that people will be impacted. And I can't imagine that she would not uh, protect them. So showing up to that on the 18th and organizing to that, that's my suggestion that everybody should do that and i think the best way to do that would be to contact evan and hoosier vapors on facebook so that's something that can be done so the next and doing that i I think when you when the judge sees the faces of the people who this is going to affect it sort of hits home that this is not just names on a on a pleading there's actually you know people that are involved in this right and then if they see their bailiffs that they're, they're actually you know it's overflowing and they've got you've got somebody that's in the you know a woman at the end of the door saying why can't i come in they're going to have to have a, you know do they are they going to have an overflow room where a video is going to show it live no, no idea what they're going to do um right so that's uh, i'm saying that's you know again i general concert seating you know that's you want to force it you want to you know you want to force it i mean i've i've gotten past people where where it, there was other people that they could stop or they could stop me and I got onto the the floor of the concert and watched Pink Floyd. But uh, so loading it up, just having a mass of people, if you're a vape shop, go to this thing because it's, it's a big deal. If if this works on the 18th, it's going to be showing up and forcing the judge's hand. And if if there's enough people in that courtroom and they're, they're swelling the doors and they're trying to get in, the judge is going to say, wait a second, you know, this obviously impacts people. The only thing I'm being asked to do today is whether I should protect them preemptively, proactively, or not. I'm not deciding the case, and it'll be. I think it'd be apparent if there's there's that many people there. there the judge would say, "I have to take these people into consideration and give an injunction." So that's on the 18th. The next step is on the 20th. Is this the federal court? Uh, is that is that the same exact situation then on the 20th? No, all we're doing is we're submitting this on brief. 
Okay, uh, so that's brief. all. It's all in writing, and there's going to be no court uh, for the for the twentieth. So if if, no. if if vape shops and vapor individual vapors want to do something, it's all on the eighteenth. Even though there's a concurrent torpedo in the water on the federal side, uh, that's going to be going on the twentieth. So that's both is good. So then the next thing is for vape e-liquid makers in the state of Indiana. What should they be doing other than to protect themselves and and you know other than what we just talked about as far as the 18th what should they be doing pretty much the same game plan but should they be uh suing or or, or preparing well, to sue or, or what what else can they do it's probably too late to, for them to sue right should they that be would, putting in application I, I said the wrong thing i blew it should they be putting in applications well, again, we talked about that. That's really a hard call for me to okay. tell you to do or not to do so, because right. So I, um, I, 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 I rem- a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty. Right. So if you're an e-liquid manufacturer in the state of Indiana, I I would suggest that they contact you on 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 the decision process of whether to put in an application. Is that fair? Are you handling stuff like that as far as the actual applications? No, I'm not. And um, is there somebody else? Not that I know of, because the lawyers in this that are involved in the federal and state case both have sort of been of the opinion that it would be fruitless to file an application when we don't think that anybody's going to comply. Okay, so if the 18th, there will likely be a decision. If the 18th fails. Then, uh, then you're gonna have the, between the 19th of this month and the 29th of this month to be able to put in an application. So I guess if it fails uh, on the 18th, I will ask you to come back and and ask for a game plan then. And then I guess that it's gonna apply to out of state people too. Um, what what's gonna happen? Because I think that it's. It, if it fails, and then there'll be the twentieth too. So you, you won't know on the twentieth whether your your thing will be approved, or will will the judge make a ruling on the on the federal side on the twentieth? No, no. I mean, the, we're going to submit this, and the court will rule. We we believe, obviously, before July first um, would be important because it would sort of be um, moved after that point. We believe we'll get a ruling before July 1st, but probably not before April 30th on the injunction. Right. So, yeah, there, there's a whole question. Federal, that... court, federal court's like the 800-pound gorilla. It, um, we, love, we love our judges, but, you know, they do things on their, own, on their own timetable, and there's really not much we can do to force them to do anything to move things along. Right. So I'm just going through the scenario where everything fails. Um and if all the court challenges fail, um, and, I, and I don't think that's the most likely. I think the most likely, if people show up on the 18th, is that the judge will protect them. I, I actually really believe that that that's, would be the only correct decision for any fair-minded judge. And we should assume that the judge is fair-minded. So if all of that fails, though, then there'll be a decision whether people need to put in their application by the end of April this month, 29th. Right. So that's going to be a major decision. And and if it all fails at that point, so um, I, I guess people can push off that decision-making process until after um, 
But it, but say say I'm just you know I'm just uh, an e-liquid maker in Indiana, and I've decided that I want to put in a application. Uh, is there anybody uh, that is doing that that we know of, or should they actually come to you? Um, they've made the decision to put in. They've decided that's something they want to do. Should they talk to you, or is there no? The, the reason why is because I'm not licensed in the state of Indiana. I'm, I'm, I'm admitted in federal court in Indiana, but not in state in the, in the state. So I really legally probably can't. Okay. So if, if after, if after the, we'll come back to this. If after the, uh, the 18th, um, uh, I don't, hold on a second. Let me kill that. Um, if after on, uh, the 18th, um, it fails, then what I will want to do is to, to call you back up and to contact you and see if I can get a recommendation of who can do this application for the 29th. It doesn't make any sense to, to talk about it anymore, and hopefully it won't be a contingency that's needed, but uh, it, it, the, because I'm worried about the user to lose it on the 29th uh, and, and getting your application, so we, we can talk about it that way. Uh, I think I've covered just about everything. I, want, I definitely appreciate you taking the time. I think uh, before I think we you basically. Off, before we no, I, off, go, that's what that was my next question. What else is that, that you want to say? Well, back circling back around to what people can do. Uh, certainly, if you're an Indiana vape user or Indiana retailer, um, contact Evan because you know they may need help with expenses. You may be able to make a contribution to you know, defray some of their litigation costs. And the same with in the federal case. Um, I know Troy is going to set up a GoFundMe account uh, for to help fund some additional expenses that we may have. Or if you're an out if you're an out-of-state e-liquid manufacturer, what you could do is talk to Azeem and talk to Eric Godding about joining and becoming a member of the Right to Be Smoke Free. Right. Which again, you, you contribute money into that. It's going to defray some of the litigation expenses. Right. Uh, yeah, it will. We'll continue on with this. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I. I don't know. Uh, may, maybe some people are going to hold off determination until after. Uh, until. Uh, until after the eighteenth, I don't know. Uh, We're kind of shooting at a moving target right now. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult to get this. I mean, that's one thing that the, the right to be smoke free uh, people have done a pretty good job already. Um, I mean, when I saw this, I mean, you got Cosmic Fog, Vapor Shark, Mount Baker Vapor, Niquid, Mary, uh, Marine Vape, uh, Marina Vape, uh, uh, Buckshot, Indigo, Hoosier Vapors, uh uh, Mountain Oak Vapors, Ruthless Kilo, and Vapor Bar. They've they've already. I'm presuming because they're listed there, they're kicking in monetary things. Uh, probably not Evan, uh, but he's he's putting time and effort into it. Um, and so that that's that's pretty good. I'm I'm kind of shocked that they were able to get as many people on this already. So um, if other people want to join them, uh, maybe that's my next is is who is the the lead of uh, the the right to be smoke free coalition? So if I was to reach out to them, who would I want to talk to? Probably Azim or or Eric Godding. Okay, so is, is he, and Eric Godding is who again? He's his partner at Keller Heckman and okay, so it's so it's so it's not being driven so much from the from from the member companies. It's being driven from the lawyers themselves. The, well, this was well. They represent like you, yeah. Well, their firm represents some of these companies already. 
And so this was this was existing clients jumping into the fray. Um, and, and also, you know, I'll sort of give a plug to the Right to Be Smoke Free uh, Coalition because this is going to be a vehicle that's going to be great if and when the FDA ever issues the deeming regs and there's a legal challenge. This is a good way to do it through this coalition. Yeah, I mean, I I I I think I've said all there. Did I say indigo vapor? That uh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm giving them as much recognition as I possibly can. I'm a real big believer in that. That's why. Yeah, each one of these companies is is helping out. Uh, I mean, they're helping out in a state that if you're a national brand, uh, some of these people. I mean, it's it doesn't take much to write off Indiana as far as uh, market share. You can just, you know, there's a lot of things to worry about. But the, all of these companies are, are not doing it. They're all saying, you know, they're all fighting for Indiana and, and fighting to continue selling their products. So, you know, well, more power to them. There's uh, effect here, Edward, because, it, and I think Evan made this point in something he had posted a while back, it's a domino effect because if this could happen in Indiana, if this if this can stand in Indiana, then it's easy to pass it many other places. New York, California. Um, I mean, this is this is a testing ground for this this law. And well, if this law stands, then you're going to see laws like it elsewhere. I, I'm not sure if I buy into that one as much, though, because I think this is a real real shady things that are going on in the state of Indiana, and I don't think. I don't think California is is as shady as, as some of this stuff. There's there's more exposure. You can't sneak things through like this. Um, I, I'm not sure if it, if it's every single state would fall that way. But if there's another, I, I'm from California, so I'll piss off some other states. If there, if there's another little podunk state out there that you know. Uh, Montana, uh, if you will, if they want to pull something off like this, yeah, they can do it. Uh, I don't think it's so, maybe maybe I'm just just uh, speaking out of turn here, uh, but I don't think it can just happen anywhere. You need to have greased palms uh, going on and and people that are not afraid to be shown. I mean, I, the monument vapor uh, the monument vapor guy that guy stood up there and basically told. Uh, everybody else that they're full of it at the hearings. He stood up there after everybody else said, and he said, oh, no, these are reasonable things. So the the people that are shoving this through for their own business, uh, you know, they're, they're doing it right out front. Um, so and, and not even being completely, uh, I'll call it, look, they're being intellectually dishonest. Um, that's, that's trying to be a, a nice way to phrase it. Um, I know Senator Alting got up on the floor of the Senate a couple weeks ago when this new law, this, this recent bill was being debated. And he made the statement that the people who were opposing this have cho- chosen to go to court instead of complying with a reasonable law because they don't want to be regulated at all. When right. in, our law, in, our, in our summary judgment motion, in the introduction, we were very upfront with many of the things that the legislature passed, like childproof caps, like that, we, we are all for. Right. And that we're only challenging these three aspects of this law. And he painted with a broad brush that we're opposed to all of this because we don't want to be regulated. Yeah. And that's uh, that's my issue with a lot of laws is that they try and stick everything in one bill. And they could have had one bill that does the things that everybody agrees with, peel them off, create a new bill, you know, send that one through and it's done. Uh, but they want to have them all attached together, so you either expect it, you you accept the whole train load, 
uh, or or nothing, and that's how they shove stuff through. Uh, well, and, and actually, it's it's kind of humorous in a way that this recent amendment, as I said, was done in a in a Senate committee dealing with a House bill, an omnibus alcohol tobacco bill that already had passed the House, and this was added to it. And what they did was they couldn't get it as a standalone bill, so they added it to something that was going to pass. They thought for sure. Well. There was another amendment that was added in the committee that dealt with a totally different issue, but affected a bunch of people in northern Kentucky. It was uh, northern Indiana. I'm sorry. It was about something about privatizing the pavilion at some state park so they could have alcohol sales. That was very controversial and darn near got this bill derailed and darn near got it vetoed by Governor Pence. Mm hmm. And we were sitting back laughing, thinking that these people have spent no telling how much money to get this vaping law through and then get it amended, only to get it derailed by something that they weren't contemplating. We were, we were kind of laughing at that, hoping it would happen. So they had to fix that, huh? Yeah, there was a lot of, there was a lot of arm twisting, we believe, to get this through. And the nicotine thing, is there anything uh, on that? Is, is that another case that needs to be filed, or is that when they defined it as nicotine? Well, we, we challenged our, our, in our law, and it really doesn't ch change per se what we're doing um, in this because whether you, class, whether you say it's e-liquid containing tobacco or e-liquid containing nicotine, it's really one and the same in the, in the eyes of the law. Uh, it really has the same meaning. Because what the legislature meant last year was nicotine. They just didn't phrase it right. All right. So if on the federal preemption thing, so the FDA deems the product, the final rule comes out, uh, does then the, the, the federal preemption help out anything in the states? Well, it's going to have an impact on it because the Indiana law as it's written says that it is in force until the feds act. And once the feds act, then apparently we read the law, at least how I read the law, is it will no longer be effective. But you've got to remember, if the FDA adopt the deeming regulations tomorrow, it's going to be years before they really ever take effect because there will be litigation. There'll no, be but they, they, would be in, they would be in effect, though. Even if there's litigation, they would be in effect. Not in not if they're enjoined, in which there'll be there'll be an effort to get them enjoined. Yeah, but that's not going to happen that easily they, to enjoin them. So, but there would be enough. So let's just go with the scenario that the FDA passes the final rule, and does that does then the final rule nullify this law in Indiana? The way the way I read the statute and the way it's we I believe it's written, it would, um, because you would then have federal requirements um, over e, the manufacturing of e liquids. But as I said, in you know, I've got the benefit of, of 25 years of, of litigating experience. I, I think that I see a scenario where a federal court would grant an injunction against the FDA regs to challenge their constitutionality. Um, well, that that'll be for a different show then. Uh, that'll be for a different show. But yeah. let's say that say that happens, and it takes five years to get the FDA case through the courts, through the federal district court, the appellate courts, and maybe even the Supreme Court. And if the law, if they're on, the deeming regs are on hold during that period, then the Indiana law would stay in effect. Yeah, but the thing is that I read the uh, some of the uh, 
I mean, there was an a, 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 a amicus brief that was filed by Casaw, Smoke uh, Prince and all these other other people uh, for the Sotera appellate court decision, and and in there, Casaw said uh, that va- uh, electronic cigarettes are tobacco and can be regulated under this act. So you've got people already filing with the courts saying that the Tobacco Control Act can apply to this product. So I just don't think that an injunction is going to be all that easy. Uh, I just don't think I don't think the judges are going to want to reverse themselves. Well, and, and how I read this, and again, we could do a whole show on. Let's the, do that, yeah. Regs. Um, you know, the, the point I want to make before we jump off is, yeah, Sotera said what it said, and it said that the FDA itself could not regulate tobacco absent congressional authority, and it said Congress has to give authority. For you to for you to regulate, it has to define what tobacco is, and the Tobacco Control Act does that. But it does and it doesn't. I I read this as, and you know, again, I'm just one lawyer in in Louisville, Kentucky, who's looking at this. And my perspective is that Congress really, in doing this, d- did a half-hearted effort. They said, okay, this is what tobacco is, plus whatever. We give the FDA authority to deem it to be. I think that violates the spirit of Satera. I think Satera told Congress, "You have to define what tobacco is, not let someone else do it." Well, I th- I thought that the the judge uh, Leon, I guess his name was, uh, said that uh, that the Tobacco Control Act was available uh, for the federal government to do and I was reading stuff with Brown and Williamson and all this other stuff so more or less the the lower court said you can use this law and then it was appealed by the FDA and then the the, the very high appellate court said we affirm that we, we affirm the decision meaning that they affirmed Leon saying that uh, that this law was applicable am I reading it wrong or I, I think what the what the DC Circuit Court of Appeals said was that only Congress can dictate the FDA could not regulate tobacco and tobacco products absent congressional authority. Wait a second. The, 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 the FDA cannot regulate tobacco products absent authority. What, what, but, what, but the Tobacco Control Act is authority because it says derivatives of, uh, of tobacco implying that nicotine is a derivative and that and that's uh zeller said uh the first day at the deeming that so if if it if the nicotine is derived from a source other than tobacco that the ctp did not have uh control over it so it it comes down to nicotine derived from a tobacco plant and even the ctp is saying synthetic tobacco uh, and nicotine is is currently currently out of scope well, and again, don't you see a legal argument there? I I, I have made an illegal argument, uh, a legal argument based off of the uh, USP, because USP, United States Pharmacopeia, defines nicotine as an element, uh, as a raw element. Um, and so if it's so... Dur- I think there's something you can do with the USP uh, and the way that it, it, it's defining uh, nicotine. You know, you, you've got the you've got the issue again. We could do a whole show on this. You've got the issue with the deeming regs on the on the date. You know, right? That, that's a huge issue. 
it's, it's retroactive, really? Yeah, it's very retroactive. Uh, and then, and mm-hmm. there's some there's some people that are going to say that. Uh, yeah, there, there there's a lot of stuff going on there. But uh, so the, the, there are some uh, companies out there that uh, might need to retain your services as a lawyer uh, and pay you some money. So how would they get in contact with that, uh, with you? Well, um, my email address is my initials. It's J-G-T-A-T-T-Y at yahoo.com. Um, my direct dial phone number is 502-214-3307. Um, and if you call and I'm not in the office, it rings to my voicemail. And my voicemail sends me an email telling me you've called and has a vo- a audio file of your call. So I can listen to you no matter where you are. Right. So I'm going to say... Uh... And you might want to back, that that if if you're looking at 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 hiring or 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 you know because you don't I please people do not just use that for random questions uh, you know and stuff because there are there is the Hoosier vapors which would would be a better clearinghouse uh, for just simple questions but I totally appreciate you coming on and I do want to bring you back and I would like to bring uh, Troy back and. Uh, I think you've probably filled up my entire show, uh, and I might try and release this. I didn't mean to. No, but I mean, it's. Uh, I, I was uh, going to pre-record a segment uh, for air on Friday, and I might just try and release this today, uh, which would probably be a better thing to do because time is of the essence, as, as well, you lawyers like to say. Yeah, I, 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 I just pre- pretend to be I'll a lawyer. Be, I'll be happy to come back on any time. Hopefully we... Um, get to come back on here in a few months and do a victory lap with you. Yeah, the 18th is the big date. That That's the big date. And then so uh, I, I think a, a massive push of, of a swelling of the halls of, of that courtroom uh, to where the bailiffs are just basically looking, glaring at the judge going, we don't know how to contain this crowd. What are we supposed to do? Uh, well, and, you know, and, and doesn't that the, the public have a right to hear? Doesn't there a, a right to, to watch this? There's a definitely a right, isn't there? Well, you know, it's, it's a public forum, and, and I don't know what they'll do if you overflow. I don't know what they'll do. I don't even have even contemplated that. The one that's thing I that's say, what I want to make them contemplate. Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't know. The one thing I want to say is anybody, and it sort of goes without saying, it's just, I'm just putting it out there, that if you're going to go to the hearing, you got to sit there and be respectful uh, of, of the process. Yeah. And you know, no, no throwing things at um, – John Nagy, the attorney for the AG's office, who actually is a nice guy, um, he's just doing his job. You know, no cat calling the judge. You know, it goes without saying. Just yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think it does go with. I mean, and I, I think I've never, I've not, I've only been into one hearing in Sacramento where there was a, it was a giant hall, probably with about, you know, 100, 250 people there, uh, for, and, and there was a guy at the back that's uh, that screamed out that you know that's bullshit, and uh, everybody had a yeah, talk with not the guy. Donald Trump rally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not, but but at the same time. Uh, you know, uh, I think Indiana has cows. I mean, you just go in there and you'd be just like a cow. You just go with a herd mentality and, and you're just, you know, they have to put you somewhere. You're trying to get in there and and, and then they're going to have to do what? Kick you out of the halls? The bailiffs, uh, if you're trying to, if you're lining up politely inside of the hall to try and get in, you know, and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm here uh, to get into this, you've already passed through security. You've already been, you know, uh, you know, gone through the radar detect, uh, not the radar, detect, but the uh, X-ray. You, you know, you're clean in there. They're going to have to. What do they do? Start to shove you out of the hole? I mean, I, 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 
I have no idea what they're going to do. Yeah, I but mean, that's what I'm saying is that you want to be polite in there, but they're going to have to herd you into another room. They're going to have to have a live feed. Uh, you know, maybe the judge is going to have to say, oh, you know, I don't know what they're going to have to do. But I, I, I think that's that would be a good place to do because, you know, uh, the Hoosiers have, have turned out 200 people to the state hall. They, they should definitely turn them out uh, to the courtroom. Unless you th- see something wrong with polite people trying to get into the courtroom, um, no, I mean it's it's a it's a public forum, and you know the courts are open to the public, and that's why we we do things in the open and not not behind closed doors. Um, and, and what I would do is I would suggest jo- dropping a dime uh, to uh, every single news, uh, you know, every single local news and every single paper, telling them that uh, you know you're planning on doing that. You, you see anything wrong with doing that? I don't. I, I know they can have uh, reporters, so I don't think they can have cameras in their courtrooms. Right, they can't have cameras. But if you're if you're planning on showing up 300 people into a thing on a court case, it's it's the kind of you want to alert the the local news crews that yeah, this is this is going to be attempted. Uh, yet you definitely want to be polite, no screaming, you know, you, you know, everybody with their Sunday best on there. But if if I was doing this thing, I would call up every single news crew and just go, just by the way, this is what's going on. We are trying to stop this. This is going to be the end of my business if if she doesn't to protect, uh, you know, give us a temporary injunction. So we're all going to show up. It might be newsworthy. Uh, and very, very well may be that the attorney for Evans Group, you know, may do a presser outside the courthouse afterwards oh, yeah. on the sidewalk. You know, I don't know that he may do that. Yeah. So there's all those things. And then, uh, you know, Evan is certainly, uh, I will reach out to Evan as well and, and tell him that we had this conversation and see if he wants to come on uh, as well. So I definitely appreciate it. I think, I think we've gone over everything. Uh, and uh, again, uh, you know, uh, Greg Troutman, I, I totally appreciate you coming on and, uh, and saying everything you did. I think that anybody listening just got about a thousand dollars of free legal advice if they want. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and, and Edward, I'll be happy to come back on any time with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, sir. Will do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.